tough question. Depression. As an exercise professional, as a teacher, a parent, a coach, a boss, a leader, a pastor, uh, can we help prevent, maintain, control, cure depression? And it's almost an egotistical question. It's probably a politically incorrect question. I've bought my teddy bear because it's an awkward, uncomfortable, confrontational question. Uh, but <laughs> as a parent, a teacher, a coach, a boss, leader, pastor, exercise professional, if somebody's ever come to you and said, please help me, I feel mentally unwell, I feel depressed, I feel anxious, I've got something going on in my head that's making me unhappy, have you wanted to help? Uh, if you've ever felt depressed or anxious or unhappy inside your head, have you ever wanted to help yourself? Uh, and it's interesting because uh, how much depression is there in the world now? Now, that's not a question to be measured uh, just on a day-to-day -day basis, how often do we hear now about my friends depressed, we've got school kids who are depressed, mental health uh, issues issues are on the, on the rise. Suicide has become a major challenge in most Western countries. Uh, there's been a lot of talk now about depression, anxiety, uh, unhappy people. It's my little puppy dog coming in from the fresh air and sunshine. Uh, he's... Uh, I've never seen him depressed. <laughs> Interesting thing to take note in animals. They seem really happy all of the time. Is depression a, a challenge that only humans have? I'm not sure because I haven't studied the psychology of animals. Uh, but as an exercise professional, uh, when I was first growing up, I can't ever remember depression or anxiety being a thing. I'm not saying it wasn't, but I don't remember ever hearing at school, oh, there's somebody depressed or there's a teacher depressed or we need to talk about depression. I can't remember that. I am a very old lady. But it seems now that it's become very, very common. And I don't know about you, but I, I just want to, I want to do something. And what can we do? So there's an interesting, and again, ironically, this has been taught to me by neuroscientists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. If I make a statement, uh, people can either accept that or, or not. Uh, if I make a statement to myself, I'm just hearing what I already know. Uh, but if I ask a question, there's two things that happen inside my own brain. Uh, psychologically, I have to find an answer. If I ask my brain a question, it can't say, no, I don't want to answer that question. It automatically goes into, well, let's find the answer to your question. Uh, so we have a change in brain chemistry just because we've asked a question versus made a statement. Uh, the, the, that's the psychology. The physiology of that is I now have different transmitters, neurotransmitters firing, which means I get neuroplasticity. I get brain changes. And if I come up with a solution to the challenge, I now have neurogenesis. I actually grow new brain cells. So the simple act of asking questions and looking for a solution means I have a bigger, better, smarter, wiser brain, which means then I can come up with better answers to all the questions that I ask. So I think that's pretty exciting. So rather than I don't want to touch that topic, it's taboo, I'm the opposite. I want to find a solution. Why are people so unhappy? What is depression? Why are people anxious? And what can we do about it? And I don't have a psychological medical answer to any of those questions. And I would be, uh, it would, I think it would be rude and irresponsible for me to say that, that, that I don't have a, have a solution. 
But I'm going to ask some questions and I think I'll, I'll leave all the questions open because you're a smart person and you'll want to, perhaps your brain will start thinking differently if you look for answers to some of these questions. So for example, if somebody comes to you and they say, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm angry, I'm unhappy inside my head. When that first started happening to me as a personal exercise coach, and I was quite young at the time, and I started managing health clubs when I was 18, so I'd have large health clubs full of people, members at my health club, and the people would often share, I'm unhappy, I'm miserable, I'm anxious, I'm depressed. Uh, and then as a professional speaker and as an educator, that's been a common statement through, through my whole career path. Uh, and there's always two answers to that, I think. One is that you want to give your answer, give your advice and, and, and help. And the other one is you say, no, that's not for me. I'm not, a, I'm, not, I'm not a health doctor, a mental health doctor. I need to refer them on to somebody else. I've been in a, in a unique situation, though, because as a personal exercise coach and as the uh, manager of a health club, uh, somebody taught group exercise classes for a long time, our people shared their challenges with me. And it seems that if somebody trusts you enough to share their challenges, uh, then what do you do? What, what solution do you come up with? So at first I said, well, no, I'm not going to take that on board because I'm not a head doctor. And I would refer them to a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a counsellor, somebody to help them. And sometimes it was just the GP who would then refer them on. What was interesting for me, though, in, in a, I don't know if it's unique to me, you might have experienced this as well, but a lot of people that were then referred to a counsellor, a psychologist or a psychiatrist would ask me to come with them. So I've had the unique experience of somebody that's never gone to a counsellor, psychologist or psychiatrist for help for myself, and there's, a, there's an interesting why, Rowie, how come you've never had to do that, and that's something that's a... Uh, how do you be happy all of your life? And I've got some great answers to that, but uh, they've worked for me. They might not work for everybody. But So I've never been to, for myself, but I've been to literally thousands of, of psychiatry, psychology, counselling sessions. And here's an interesting question. If you are an exercise professional and your role is to get people fit and strong, and after 15, 20 years, somebody is not fit and strong, uh, what would you think of yourself as an exercise professional? What would your client have the right to think of you as an exercise professional? I came to you because you specialize in getting people fit and strong, and I'm still not fit and strong after 20 years. On a simpler example, if uh, somebody, somebody keeps taking their car to get fixed, and after 20 years a mechanic hasn't fixed the car, uh, what would you think about the mechanic? This car's been with you now for 20 years, and it's still broken. What's going on? Well, that's been one of my challenges with people and many, many hundreds, if not thousands of people in my life who have been going to some kind of mental health specialist for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and they're still unhappy. They're still miserable. They're still depressed. They still aren't getting uh, getting better. If, if And I don't, I, I just, I can't, I find it difficult to deal with that. Uh, and the big part of that, of course, is if you're going to a, a mental health specialist who prescribes drugs, then there's going to be pharmaceuticals involved and long years of, of pharmaceutical use. Uh, if you've ever read the packet of an antidepressant, for example, uh, there are some very serious warnings about long-term uh, what happens to your body physiologically, psychologically, when you take 
antidepressants and there's a big long list of challenges that can happen to your body. So my question has always been, well, first of all, how can I prevent people from having to use pharmaceutical antidepressants? And is that possible? And what are the, what are the solutions if, if it was possible? Better question, though, and this is one that I always come back to, zero-based thinking. What if there were no pharmaceuticals? What if the pharmaceutical companies in the world had never existed and they'd never developed, invented, created antidepressant drugs? Does that mean that the world would have to stay depressed? And would we have still had the massive increase in depression that we've had? Uh, and there's an argument there. I know that some people say we've always had the same amount of depression as we've got now. It's just that people didn't talk about it. Now people feel more comfortable about talking about it. But I'm still looking at the solution. So whether or not people talked about it 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and now they are, great that they're talking about it. But what's the solution? How do we help people who aren't happy? The reverse of that is the people that are happy, the people that don't feel depressed, whatever that means. And I am going to ask that question first up. If you've ever said, I feel depressed, or somebody has said to you, I feel depressed, or I'm suffering from depression, my very first question after that statement is, what does that mean to you? So you've described yourself as something. What does that mean to you? Because one of the challenges I've got in a, in a world where we get bombarded every day with statements, the, the media, social media, the government, the doctors, the pharmaceutical companies, they all throw these statements at us and it seems we get all caught up in the, in the uh, same terminology. So there's, there's depression, there's anxiety, there's ADHD, there's uh, post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. There's all these things that people get labelled with. And I'll go a step further as an exercise professional. People get labelled with, you've got coronary heart disease, type 2 diabetes, osteoporosis, uh, you're obese, you've got Alzheimer's, you've got dementia, uh, you've got cancer. They're all diagnosis statements. What does that actually mean? Rather than, I'm depressed, I always ask, what does that actually mean to you? Do you know what that is? Uh, and again, as an interesting side note, if somebody diagnoses you with cancer or osteoporosis or coronary heart disease or cardiovascular disease or Alzheimer's or dementia, do we have the right to ask, what is that? How did I get it? What is it? How can I get rid of it? How can I prevent it from ever happening to me again? And I'll use cancer as an example because there's, of course, lots of different kinds of cancers. And it seems that a diagnosis of cancer for a lot of people means, oh, I'm going to die. Well, that's, of course, not true, yeah? There are a lot of people who uh, have, there's so many different kinds of cancers now, and a lot of them are preventable and or curable. So what does depression mean? If you use that word or somebody else is using that word, what does that actually mean? And could that be different for everybody? So if it's different for everybody, is there the same solution for everybody? And I don't, again, I don't have an answer to that, just some great questions. So are there countries or are there people who have never been depressed? Uh, and have you met anybody that if you say to them, have you ever suffered from depression, they would say, hell no, I don't even know what that means. Uh, and interesting, uh, and you may have heard this before depending on your circle of influence, but it's been suggested that in third world countries uh, where survival is the number one 
uh, purpose for waking up. So in a country where there is not enough food, not enough water, not enough clothes, and people are struggling to survive, there seems to be very low rates of depression and or suicide. Now, just I would like to know why that is, wouldn't you? Why is it that in a Western world where people have enough food and enough clothes and they've got a house to live in and a car to drive and beautiful things in their life and beautiful people in their life, why is there so much depression and or suicide? And there's countries where even getting enough clean water is a really serious challenge. Uh, But there are much lower cases of people who are unhappy. In fact, if you ever see pictures or if you've ever had the privilege of traveling to places, third world countries, uh, where people have nothing. I've driven through villages in Africa, driven through villages in in some of the um, South Pacific islands, uh, South America, uh, Mexico, and people have got nothing. They're living in a shanty shack with dirt on the floor, and the kids are smiling, and the parents are playing soccer with them, and they're having a really great day, and everyone seems happy, but they've got nothing. And yet we live in a Western world where there seems to be so much depression and so much use of pharmaceutical drugs to handle depression, and yet we have everything. So I have, I have to ask the question, why is it that people who have got nothing can be happy and people that have got everything can be so unhappy? And if you go back to, because you could, you could analyze that, couldn't you? And the psychologists and psychiatrists would probably analyze that. I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I'm an exercise uh, I'm a, a, a passionate exercise professional who wants some bloody answers to some of these questions. So what I've been studying is how the brain works physiologically, not psychologically, and how does the brain work physiologically with the, the uh, other systems of the body uh, that force us, make us healthy mentally and physically? What, what, what is that connection? And there's some really interesting questions that I think should be asked. And I don't know, you don't have to get answers to them, but I think we should be asking them of the medical professionals that talk about depression, anxiety, uh, and all the horrible mental health challenges that are happening in the world. So let's go back to my third world country analogy or experience. If I am waking up in the morning and I don't know how I'm going to eat, I don't know where I'm going to get fresh water from. I don't know how I'm going to be able to care for my children today. I don't know how I'm going to be able to survive today. What is my purpose? So I wake up. (laughs) I can't stay in bed because, first of all, it's too bloody uncomfortable because I'm sleeping on the floor. Uh, And I have to get up because I've got kids to look after and I've got to survive. I'm in survival mode. Now, the physiology there is very exciting because when the body's in survival mode, when we feel like we're under threat... The body then goes into all the neurotransmitters of the human body via the endocrine system, the central nervous system, the brain and the body work together to help me survive. As a human race, our human physiology is designed to survive. So if I wake up and I go, well, I don't know where I'm going to get my next glass of water from, and I don't, or my glass for that matter, I don't know where I'm going to get food today for my family, I better get up and get going and work this out. And interestingly, the biggest countries in the world 
uh, the poorest countries in the world, when you look at India and China and Brazil, these are massive populations of 300, 400 million, a billion people with some of the poorest people in the world and yet some of the lowest cases of depression and lowest cases of suicide. Uh, and I, I will ask the question, is it possible that when we've got a purpose and if the purpose is just to stay alive, that it's, you can't be uh, suicidal and have a purpose to stay alive. They, they're obviously the, the opposing opposites. I either want to be alive or I want to be dead. But the interesting thing about it, a body that's in survival mode, it doesn't want to be dead. It wants to survive. And the beautiful thing about being in survival mode is that your body produces the neurotransmitters that you need. And I'll give you some really cool examples. If I've got a wild animal chasing me, I get the hell out of there. My body produces the adrenaline, epinephrine, cortisol. I get I release energy from every cell in my body to fill up my bloodstream with blood sugar and blood fats so that I can go. My heart rate increases, my blood pressure increases. Uh, catecholines release everything out of my cells to make sure that I can run away from the animal or I can turn and fight the animal. If I've got a wild tribe of crazy people chasing me and I need to survive, I'll either my body produces what I need to run away from them or what I need to turn and fight them. That's called survival. <laughs> when we're under stress, when we're under threat, our body says, well, let's go. We're either going to sprint away from here, flight, or we've got to turn and fight. And it's called, you've heard that many times, I'm sure, fight and flight. It's because the body's designed to survive. But if I've got no reason to survive, if everything's kind of cozy and I'm warm here in my bed and uh, I don't need to earn any money because I'm doing just enough to survive, and that's a really important statement. If I'm, or it's a question, but ask, ask yourself the question, if I'm doing just enough to survive, so I am surviving, why would I need to be in survival mode? Because I am surviving. It seems that people with the biggest challenges, with the biggest reasons, because their life is so crappy, they don't want it to be like that, are the ones that actually get up and do something. And if you get up and do something, you've got a purpose to get up and go, is it possible, just, just think about this, is it possible that you couldn't be depressed? I'll give you another example. Uh, I hate my life, I'm miserable, I don't want to get out of bed, I don't feel good, I'm unhappy. But you now are given a five-star trip around the world, first-class, five-star accommodation to go and see all the beautiful places in the world, and, and you have to be at the airport at five o'clock in the morning. Do you think you could get up? <laughs> Do you think your body might create some stimulation for you to get up? We've got this great experience. We've got a purpose to get up, which is this great holiday that we're going on. Let's go. And people who normally can't get out of bed before midday are up at three o'clock in the morning getting ready to go on their holiday. Uh, the experience has been created. The purpose has been created to get up. So whether it's a wild animal chasing you and you've got to get up or it's a wow experience and you've got to get up, uh, what about if you got a telephone call at four o'clock in the morning to say that uh, there's a big suitcase full of money and it's being delivered to your house, but you have to be there to pick it up. You have to be up and dressed and, and be able to answer the door. Would you have the purpose to get up? Oh no, I'm too tired, I've got to stay here. And I'm not saying that there are people who would still stay in bed, but is it possible, and this is my driving force here, if I if the, if life gives me a purpose, so I've got I have to get up because I'm under threat or I'm being stressed, the body will get me up. 
the only reason we even wake up is because epinephrine and adrenaline start pumping through our body. That's the only reason we wake up for any reason. So those neurotransmitters that are normally called stress, fight and flight drugs, they're really exciting because they're, they're the reason that we get up. But if you want a reason, a purpose to get up, you have to have something that's attacking you, something that's trying to kill you, a reason to survive or a purpose. So if the world hasn't created a purpose for you, could it be a good idea to provide your own purpose? And if you've got children, could that be a purpose that you want to get up and do something for your kids to make sure that they don't starve, that they've got clothes to wear, that they can go and get a great education, that they can have a great life? Now, I understand there's plenty of parents where that isn't a driving force, but for some people it is. There are some people that are depressed and anxious and miserable and never want to get out of bed until they have children. And I have a great example of, of one of my members who uh, he overweight, out of shape, smoker, drinker, didn't have any, no motivation whatsoever to be a healthy, fit, strong human being until his wife announced that they were having a baby. And it was like something mentally changed in his brain. And he, what if my, my child looks at me and says, Daddy, you're fat? Or what if my child looks at me and says, Daddy, you're lazy? Or Daddy, why don't you have a better job? Or Daddy, why don't we live in a better house? And within nine months, literally, he got out of, uh, out of uh, a lousy, stinking, rotten job, organized for a new house, organized for a new car, uh, made sure that he had a, 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 a put themselves in a financial situation where his child would be looked after, and he got himself into great shape. No challenge getting him out of bed anymore. Boom, purpose, have a child. Now, I'm not suggesting you need to go and have a child to have a purpose, but what do you need to do? What do the people in your life need to do that are depressed to create a purpose to get up? Uh, somebody might say, I'm depressed and tired and I can't be bothered getting out of bed, but the fire alarm goes off and, they're gonna, and the house is going to burn down. Most people will get out of bed and go because they're now in survival mode. So this is a really important question for me. Can I manipulate that situation? So if I'm unhappy, what would happen if I created a purpose? So there's, if, I, if I don't feel there's a purpose, what if I found one? So I'm going to give you an interesting, uh, this was an interesting research experience that I did as part of my career path. I had a lot of clients, in fact, most of my clients as a personal exercise coach were people who didn't want to eat food, people who had a poor relationship with food, and a lot of them were in the situation where they were every day striving not to eat. Uh, and when you, don't, when you don't eat, of course, you get thin, you get osteoporosis, your body wastes away, you become weak and frail, and there's every chance that you might not live. So I would take my clients in that situation to the oncology, children's oncology ward at the major hospitals and at the time in Sydney and Brisbane in Australia. So I would take them and introduce them to young children, tiny children who were dying of cancer. They wanted to eat, but they couldn't. They wanted to live, but they might not be able to. And it was interesting to watch a headspace change for you. You're trying to kill yourself. You're, you're trying not to eat food. You're trying to, or you want to let your body waste away. But here are these kids who want to be alive. And now the other really interesting thing, if you've never been to an oncology, a children's oncology ward, uh, please do that. Please do that one time. If you have ever ever been unhappy or, or depressed or miserable or haven't had a purpose for living, please go and do that. Uh, these are children who literally have no hair. 
they've been they most of them know they might might not live for very much longer uh, and I've never seen happier kids it's almost like if I know that I haven't got very long to live I want to live every day to its and even kids that are really sick and they're throwing up all the time and, and their life is really miserable, but they're aiming to be happy. And they teach you so many lessons about the importance of um, treasuring every minute. Uh, and I say that really passionately because I think we waste, all of us as humans, waste so much time being angry, being miserable, gossiping, criticizing, doing horrible things to our life and to other people's lives. And yet we only have a limited amount of time on the planet. Why would we waste any time? And an oncology ward will teach you how short life can be because it's particularly a children's ward. But we don't know how long. You and I don't know how long we're going to live for. We've got no clue. There's an interesting and very controversial question. If you knew you were going to die six weeks' time, 12 months' time, two years time and you were currently feeling depressed and anxious is it possible that you might now find a purpose to go and live your life because you haven't got very much longer to live now I know that I don't know the answer to that question but is it possible so the reverse of all of this is if I can manipulate my my life to have a purpose so if I haven't got one what should I do to get a purpose should I find a hobby should I do an education program should I change my career path should I do something with my life that would give me a purpose to get up what can I do to add value to the world there's a lot of people who have been miserable and depressed and then they have uh, become part of a charity or a church or they go and look after animals that have been abused or they go and work at the zoo or they go and help at a soup kitchen or they do something that isn't self-absorbing. So they're not thinking constantly, I'm unhappy, I'm, mis I'm miserable, I'm depressed. I'm, my purpose is I'm going to get up and go and do something for people who uh, are worse off than I am or animals that are worse off than I am. So they create their own purpose. The reverse of that, and this is where a lot of my study has been very exciting for me as part of, part of neuroscience, how does the brain work, is can I change my brain chemistry so that I'm not depressed? And I'm not pretending in any way, shape or form to be a neuroscientist. I just have some great questions. If I put my body under stress, uh, so I feel angry, anxious, annoyed, frustrated, I've now starting to produce those movement chemicals. My body, when I'm under stress or when I'm under pressure, my body will produce epinephrine, adrenaline, cortisol, and catecholamines will open up the cells of my body so that I can fight or flight. Is it possible that as humans, because we've either become lazy or unfit and unhealthy and we don't think we can, we don't fight and we don't flight? And the third option and the only other option besides fight and flight, of course, is to panic, to freeze. So if I'm under threat and I don't go sprinting and I don't lift heavy or I don't punch or I don't kick or I don't fight, is it possible then I'm going to freeze? So my body says, oh, I can't do this. And we go into hide under the bed covers. I don't want to get up because I can't, I can't deal with the threat. I can't run away from it. I can't fight it. So I'm just going to stay here and try and pretend it's going to go away. I'm going to hide from it. I'm going to panic because of it, which means we can't think clearly, we can't make great decisions, and our body shuts down. 
what if, <laughs> and this is the challenge as an exercise professional, because if I say go exercise, for most people that have shut down and panicked and they want to stay under the covers, they have no interest in exercising. And I get that. Why would I? It's all too hard. But is it possible that as exercise professionals, we've made it too hard? Because we've created exercise programs that we've said you've got to go to the gym and do a class for 45 minutes, or you've got to go to the gym and do a gym program three times a week. It's got to be there for an hour. There's 15 exercises, three sets of 10. You've got to wear these kind of clothes, and it's all too much. What if we created, based on the physiology of the human body and the physiology of the brain, what if we created exercise programs for people that if they are under stress, they can actually flight and they can actually fight and that's why anatomy and physiology becomes so important now as an exercise professional because here's the question there's three energy systems in the body there's the phosphate system for 10 seconds of 100 percent effort there's the lactate system which is 10 seconds to two minutes of reasonably high intensity and after that we can go forever in the aerobic system we can use a combination of carbohydrate and fat and we can go for a really long time so we can walk for hours, we can ride a bike for hours, we can, uh, some people can run for hours because they're plod jogging. Uh, but if I can do something for hours and hours, so the further I'm away from the 100% effort phosphate system, because that's the one that's activated when I'm under the highest stress. If the animal's going to kill me, if there's a wild tribe trying to kill me, I'm going to sprint out of there because I'm under stress, or I'm going to turn and fight because I'm under stress. But if I can wander away because the threat's two hours away, is it possible that that energy system doesn't provide me with the neurotransmitters, the 100% effort neurotransmitters that change the chemicals in my brain? So when it comes to an exercise program, if I provide the threat as the exercise professional, so I'm the wild animal or I'm the wild tribe or I'm the stress, so it's a 10-second phosphate system spurt of punching, kicking, jump squatting, sprinting on a bike, on a treadmill, on a rowing machine, dancing, running up a hill, climbing a ladder, running through soft sand. If I provide the stress for my client, for my human being that's under stress and feels threatened, and I give them 10 seconds of intense activity, 100% effort to get away, that can come from lifting, punching, kicking, sprinting, getting puffed, or lifting heavy, either of those activate the endocrine system for 100% effort. So if I lift as heavy as I possibly can, I punch as hard as I can, I kick as hard as I can, I sprint as hard as I can for 10 seconds in the phosphate, get the hell out of their system. Now what happens? So when I'm under stress and I have to go sprint, punch, kick, I produce epinephrine, adrenaline, and cortisol so I can go. But after I've gone, so now I get my breath back. Now my, I, my heart rate goes back to normal. My blood pressure goes back to normal. My blood fats and uh, uh, sugar, blood sugar levels go down and the blood fat returns to the fat cell. The sugar returns to, as glycogen to the muscle, uh, to the liver and to the brain. Now I'm back to normal. But what happens now? The neurochemistry has changed. Because what I've done is I've intensely... Uh, activated the hormonal system which then creates another response to every uh, happening becomes an outcome to everything I do there's a consequence the beautiful consequence to 100% effort is my brain chemistry changes to produce you ready 
antidepressant neurotransmitters. Now, they're not called that. I don't know when we ever started calling something antidepressants. But the things in our brain that change, so after I've sprinted, my body says, wow, congratulations, you've just run away from the threat, you've overcome the threat, you've killed the threat, you've punched the hell out of the threat, it's gone, woohoo, reward drug, dopamine. And I feel amazing because I've overcome a challenge. Serotonin, uh, satisfaction neurotransmitter. And I look around and half an hour ago, I hated my life. I was miserable, depressed and angry. And now I look around and I love my life because I've overcome a challenge. I've achieved something. I feel really good. And I go, wow, I feel awesome. Serotonin. Endorphins are a happy drug. And we talk about endorphins as, yeah, they're the thing that make you feel good when you exercise. But they're also a painkiller. They're a natural painkiller. So instead of having to smoke cannabis or take a pharmaceutical painkiller for whatever thing that's going on inside your body, your body produces endorphins when you sprint, when you lift heavy, which are natural painkillers for anything that's going on in your body. So not only do you feel good, but the pain goes away, mental or physical pain. And then the big one, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is fertilizer for your brain. And the, the really exciting thing there is when you fertilize your brain, yes, you get neuroplasticity, changes in the brain, but you also now have neurogenesis. You grow new brain cells. You think more clearly. You think more wisely. You think more creatively. You can overcome challenges. Is it possible that whatever's challenging you, you can look at it differently now? So whatever's making you feel depressed, anxious, angry, frustrated... Is it possible now that you'll have a brain that can deal with it better? I'm not making statements here. I'm asking questions. Here's the question. What if you are depressed, anxious, miserable, frustrated, your life is terrible? What if you created purpose to get up? What if you forced yourself to create purpose? Go and look after animals that have been beaten up. Go and look after children that are going to be dying of cancer. Go and feed homeless people in a, in, a, in a soup kitchen. Go to the library and help stack books. Uh, go, go and offer your services to... There's so many charities in the world that would just love it. And how about this? What if you just did this? Uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, and I have a client that did this. Just clean up your neighborhood. He said, well, I'm bored to tears. I've got no purpose to get up. I'm depressed as hell. I'm going to clean up my neighborhood. So he puts on a, a um, overalls, plastic bag, rubber gloves, and walks around his neighborhood cleaning it up. Well, guess what? People appreciate that. People thank him for that. He feels like now he's adding value to his community, and he's got a reason to get up in the morning. What are you getting up for? I've got to go clean up, clean up my community. If you live in a world where there's no rubbish to pick up, congratulations. But most places we live, what about if you volunteered at the council to clean graffiti off buildings? I'm just randomly throwing out some ideas there that might give you a purpose to get up or the people in your life give them a purpose to get up. But more importantly, that's a I have to force myself to do. But if I create the stress, the exercise stress that produces the happy drug neurotransmitters that make people feel good, will they then be able to handle that whatever's hassling them, annoying them, frustrating them, making them angry, depressing them better? So I don't have an answer. I just have some great questions. What if? What if as exercise professionals we stop telling people 45-minute classes, one-hour gym workouts three times a week? People say to me, Rowie, how often should I exercise? My answer is always the same. How often do you want to feel good? 
You cannot exercise at 100% effort and feel bad afterwards. The two don't go together because when you put in 100% effort physically, you now get those trans neurotransmitter changes in your brain. You produce dopamine, uh, serotonin, and uh, endorphins for painkillers and happy drugs, and you start to think more clearly. Uh, if you And that all comes from 100% effort. So it's not about going for a 45-minute class. It's not for going for an hour's walk. It's not going to, to the gym for an hour unless you're lifting heavy while you're there and you rest in between. Uh, you can go to the gym for a 45-minute class as long as you're doing interval training when you work at 100% effort, get your breath back, 100% effort, get your breath back. I'm sharing all of this so passionately because... We live in a world now where there's not too many schools in the world, in the Western world, isn't that interesting, where there are children who are, who are not on antidepressants. I've been to schools where half of the children at the school, primary school and or high school, are on some form of antidepressant or have been or are wanting to, to get onto an antidepressant. I've been to schools where Mental Health Week has become... Every couple of months they have to have a mental health week because people are really challenged with their mental health and their depression. Uh, we live in a world that's been bombarded with uh, bushfires and droughts and floods and worldwide medical pandemics and challenges with the worldwide financial situation and we are bombarded with horrible news and stuff every single day. Uh, no wonder our kids are depressed and anxious. What are we doing to make sure that they have the ability to fight and flight. I want my kids, and I don't have children, I just want the kids of our world to grow up knowing that if a, if a stress or challenge comes onto the, into their life, onto their path, they can sprint away from it at full, at full power, 100% effort, or they can turn and fight. But the last option, or, and there is no option, is to freeze. And it seems that that's one of the things that we are promoting. We're promoting for our kids to freeze. We're scaring them. How about this? And this is a very controversial uh, question. What would happen if we turned off the television? What if we didn't give our children access to the, the misery and the bad news and, and the interesting information? And I say that because is the, all the news that we hear the truth? Why would a news station that is designed to make money from bad news, and the only way they make money is from bad news, why would they give us good news? Nobody wants to listen to good news, it seems. Uh, there's been some news stations that have tried it and it didn't work. So everything we see on a day-to-day -day basis, from usually from the, the normal media, but now also from social media, seems to be bad news. What if we just didn't give that to our kids? What if we turned it off? Could one of the, here's a really controversial question, could one of the ultimate ways to get rid of anxiousness and fear and depression and, and, and kids that are scared just to turn off the news, turn off social media, take our kids outside, get some fresh air and some sunshine, give them animals to play with, a great park to go to and be a happy. Be the happy, positive, healthy person. If you're a, if you're an adult, do our kids see that we're happy, positive people? If our kids are constantly hearing, I'm depressed, I'm anxious from their parents, their teachers, from their environment, is it possible that they'll start thinking that it's normal? How about we as adults start creating a purpose to be alive and getting healthy, fit and strong and working at that 100% effort so we can produce the neurotransmitters in our brain that are anti 
depressing.